Good morning, all. It really is great to be back uh, in East London, back at Sterling. Um, how many of you were here last time I preached? Great. Good to see you again. And we are trusting the Lord for a great morning, a great day. Uh, we've had a, a brilliant few days together as advanced churches around the Eastern Cape. Um, if you didn't know, there are uh, a few churches that gather under the banner of advance, and we partner through friendship, and we partner because of the cause of the gospel. Uh, we partner around planting churches and around strengthening churches, and that's what we give ourselves to. And so this morning, I'm here. Uh, a couple of the other guys are at Everyday People, um, at the Ridge, um, and then tonight there'll be a, another time um, in Beacon Bay. And it's just so good for us to all be together. Um, the Lord has already been speaking to us this morning. I hope you've noticed the Lord is speaking, and uh, I really do trust that this word would continue to uh, confirm for us what the Lord has already started to say. Uh, let me begin by asking you a question. How Have you ever said something wrong that got you into big trouble? Lawrence is, Lawrence is nodding. Often, right? Often. Well, it can't be as bad as Stephen's situation. Stephen, in the book of Acts, is a freshly appointed deacon. And the text tells us in Acts 6 that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And he was an incredibly faithful man. And he says nothing wrong and gets killed for it. So like we say stuff wrong and we, we get into trouble. He says everything right and he gets killed for it. And we're going to be looking at the story of, of Stephen. It's known as Stephen's martyrdom. And uh, like I said, we, we first meet with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. And he's appointed as one of the seven deacons who are men full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And they were to give themselves to practical ministry. And they really excel in this practical ministry. But then Stephen goes beyond the call of, of just practical ministry. And in Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen in a deep theological debate with the Jewish synagogue leaders. And so he's really in the place of conflict and controversy. And he's in a deep theological debate. And on the heels of the theological debate, he bursts into a scintillating sermon. Acts chapter 7 is an incredible sermon covering the scope of Old Testament history. But not everyone enjoyed it. In fact, many hated it. So much so that they stoned him to death. And so we're going to read of the stoning. And uh, I want to draw out some application and principles for us. So Acts chapter 7 from verse 54. Now when they, that's the Jewish audience in the synagogue, largely the Jewish leaders, heard these things. So what did they hear? Stephen's scintillating sermon on the Old Testament and how all of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. This is why it got him into trouble. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Clearly they were unhappy. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This really is a, a tragic turn in the story. I mean, freshly appointed deacon, incredibly faithful in practical ministry, preached the gospel faithfully. God had, God had appointed him. God had called him. God had used him. God had gifted him. And now he's dead. And we need to ask a question, and we need to be a people who like to ask questions. And I want to ask this question this morning. Where was God? Where was God in the suffering and death of Stephen? Why, why would Jesus just simply stand by and let a good man like this die? Ever thought something along those lines? I mean, come on, to, to lose a man of Stephen's caliber after such a short ministry, in, in our minds, it seems so inefficient. God, what are you doing? Why call him in the first place? If he's only going to have such a short, impactful ministry, why not rather take out the wicked men? Why not rather turn the scales and, you know, make the stones go the other way as they throw them? You know, you directed David's stones, you can surely... You know? And so I want to approach this question for us this morning in two ways. I want us firstly to approach it philosophically, which, by the way, is not an unbiblical practice. God gave us minds to reason and to think, and we have a, a logical faith. Our faith's not a blind leap in the dark. We have a reasonable faith that rests on truth. And so we're going to think it through philosophically, and then we're going to think it through theologically. Or, or simply biblically. We're going to look at what the text says. Why, why would God let this happen? So firstly, philosophically. Now, obviously, we can't cover everything this morning. We don't have enough time. So I, I want to start by referencing uh, a ministry that I would recommend you uh, look at. Ravi Zacharias's ministry. Some of you probably already do listen to some of his stuff. But he's a, a great apologist who, who defends the Christian faith and uh, is really excellent at it. And so if you're looking for resources in terms of these big questions, these big objections to Christianity, you know, how could a loving God allow evil, those types of things, he's excellent. And so I just want to reference him. But let me just say this, that suffering, the topic of suffering and evil is a difficult topic for everyone, whether you're an atheist or a theist, whether you believe in God or whether you don't believe in God, suffering is an issue for both. And the reality is that it doesn't matter if you are religious or irreligious. We will all experience suffering at some point. It's an inescapable reality of everyone's life. The great poet T.S. Uh, Eliot said this, All cases, he's speaking of suffering, all cases are unique and very similar to others. His point is, it's a bit of sarcasm, his point is, Pain is universal. It's not that unique. Everyone is going to experience it. R.E.M. wrote that great song, Everybody Hurts. And so it's not a matter of if, but 
a matter of when. Now, the fact that we have an objection, the fact that there is an objection that exists, whether by atheist or whether by theist, whether, whether it's the Christian or the non-Christian that has this objection, I want to submit to you is actually an argument for the existence of God and not an argument against the existence of God. So the, argue, the objection is, how can there be a God if there is so much evil and suffering in the world? And I want to submit to you that the fact that you object, the reason you've got a problem with evil and suffering, the fact that you think it's wrong, the fact that you feel the tension is in itself an argument for the existence of God. Here's why. Because if we acknowledge that there is such a thing as evil, we have to assume that there is also good. So if we feel the pain and the tension of, of evil, we have to acknowledge that there, therefore there must be good. Because otherwise there's no comparison. How, how do you know it's evil? And if there is good, then there must be a standard or a moral law upon which we base what is good. Otherwise, you can't differentiate. How do you differentiate then between what is evil and what is good if there's no standard or moral law upon which we can base that? So let's carry on the, the thinking. Then if we, if we believe that there is a standard or a moral law, then there must be a moral law giver because where does the standard come from? So let's reverse it a bit. If there is no moral law giver, if there is no God, then there is no moral law. And if there is no moral law, then there is no good and therefore no evil. And so what's your objection? Now, if you're confused, <laughs> let, me, let me give you a quote that, that will clarify. C.S. Lewis, he says the same thing, but in much better words. He says, my argument against God, and he wasn't an atheist at first, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Again, I want to say to you, the fact that you struggle with evil and suffering can only be explained by the fact that you are made in the image of God. That you are able to discern and differentiate between that's wrong. What makes you say that? What makes you feel that? The reason you feel that is because there is a moral law. And Romans 1 tells us that God has put that law even in our hearts, on the consciences of men. You see, if we, if we were just simply the product of naturalistic evolution, as our kids are being taught today, we would have no desire for justice, but only a desire for survival. Why do we object? Because we're made in the image of God. Your objection to suffering reveals that you are more than just the product of chance. Tim Keller, 
I would recommend his works to you as well. C.S. Lewis, obviously, too. Tim Keller says this. If there is no God, people don't really have a good basis for being outraged at suffering. After all, death and destruction are perfectly normal. It's the natu- it is natural for the strong to eat the weak, and the survival of the fittest is the genetic principle. Someone can only object to injustice if they already believe in some kind of supernatural moral standard. And where does such a supernatural standard come from if there is no God? And so we could, we could continue to reason philosophically. And I know that, 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 that we're not answering the, the specific question. But we are answering some questions. And we are ruling out the straw man argument of there is no God. But which God? Which God? Who who is this God then? And so I want to acknowledge that we're not answering that, but we are at least beginning to peel back some layers of false arguments. And so there is a philosophical approach, but thankfully we're not just left with human thinking, right? We have the Word of God. We have the, the mind of God given to us. We, and it's not just any mind. It's the infinite wisdom of God given to us. And so let's think it through biblically. Let's think it through theologically. And so the question is, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, biblically, that only ever happened once. And he volunteered. And his name is Jesus. He's the only good person, truly good person, who has ever lived. And, and here's the amazing, astonishing thing. He's the only good person, and yet he experienced suffering. He experienced pain and death on a cross. Now what that tells us as Christians, it shows us that God is interested. God is invested. God is not distant when it comes to our pain and suffering. In fact, God himself steps into our pain and suffering. And the greatest example of that is Jesus. God takes pain and suffering so seriously as a result of sin that he steps in and takes it upon himself. Again, Tim Keller, he says this, if God continues to allow sin and suffering and we look at the cross of Jesus He says, we still don't know what the answer is. However, now we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us and that he is indifferent towards our greatest needs. I found that incredibly helpful. You see, as Jesus was dying on the cross, evil was at its worst. But also, right there, while Jesus was on the cross, we must conclude that God was at his best. Isn't it uh, the the irony or the, 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 the wonder of the cross is that it is both brutal and beautiful? Because on the cross we see justice, the, the justice of a righteous, holy God. And we also see love. And mercy. But we must not forget that it was painful. And I think for the disciples, 
They, off, they, they feel like we feel often. It, it, you know, you imagine the disciples around the foot of the cross and after spending time with Jesus, they must have been thinking, how can anything good come from this? This is tragic. This is brutal. This is the Messiah who's been crucified. And, and from their perspective, they are left bewildered. They are left frustrated. They are left disillusioned. God, where are you? How can you let this happen? But days and weeks pass. And what was once frustration and disappointment turns to great joy. As they begin to understand what the cross really meant. Now you might be thinking, oh, but that's Jesus. You know, that's, how can you, you know, you're trying to argue that, uh, that God has a purpose. That God, I mean, obviously there was a purpose in the cross and the death and the suffering of Christ. That, that bad, bad things happen to the only good person. Is there a purpose? There is a purpose. We sing about that every Sunday. But what about us? What about us? You know, that was Jesus. Well, there are many examples in Scripture. We could go to, we could go to Job. We could go to Moses. Jacob, we could go to Paul. Let's just consider quickly, just briefly, let's consider Joseph, for example. Remember the story of Joseph, grew up in a godly home, the youngest of 12 brothers. His father, Jacob, loved him. God gave him dreams. His dad gave him a cool coat. And things were going really well for Joseph, but then they take a bad turn. His brothers gang up against him. They're jealous. They betray him, they beat him, they leave him in a pit to die. Then some passerby uh, takes him, sells him into slavery in Egypt. Eventually he's promoted from bottom slave to top slave. Not much of a promotion. But then he's accused of sexual immorality and thrown into prison. I mean, it really, poor Joe, it's, got, it's gone from bad to worse. One bad thing after the next. And then we, we realize this astonishing reality that actually it's been 13 years. 13 years since God spoke to Joseph, since God gave him dreams. And 13 years passed, 13 horrible years, and then it all begins to make sense. As the story unfolds, Pharaoh has a perplexing dream, and Joseph gets the interpretation. And in so doing, Joseph is promoted and the result is that he saves the entire welfare and the entire economy of the nation of Egypt, including his family who come to look for food. And I want you just to hear how the story ends in Genesis 50 verse 20. We read this. As Joseph stands before his family, we see the sovereignty of God over all things. And Joseph says this, As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil. And they did. It was evil. It was wrong. You meant evil against me. But look at this. But God meant it for good. Are you telling me that God allowed that to happen? I'm not telling you that's what the Bible is saying. God planned this. God allowed it. 
God allowed evil and suffering to pass through his hand because there was a purpose. Now notice the the evil and the suffering didn't come from the hand of God. Because that would be the wrong theological conclusion. Evil never comes from the hand of God. But he allows it to pass through his hand. He knows about it. And he allows it to pass through his hand. Think Job. He allows it to pass through his hand for a reason. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God is not the author of sin, but he's sovereign over sin. God is not the author of evil. He is sovereign over evil. And evil people will be held accountable for their sinful actions. So our conclusion, simply from a a brief survey of redemptive history, of how God has worked with his people, we can and we should conclude this, that God, in his infinite wisdom, sometimes allows bad things to happen for our greater good. Do we believe that? Do we really trust him enough to believe that? That, that, that we're not, I'm not talking here about fatalism. I'm talking here about a father-filtered life. A father who filters all of life that hits us, and sometimes it hits us hard. Isaiah 55 verse 8, the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, I want to give you a, a human example. I, I heard this story. was on one of Ravi's talks. And it's a story of a, of a young girl with a, a very rare disease. Some of you might know it if you're in the medical world. It's uh, abbreviated CRPA. It's a congenital insensitivity to pain. And it's incredibly rare. The bottom line is, She can't feel pain. Now, at first, this might, you might think, oh, that's cool. You know, you could jump off whatever you want to jump off. But at first, this sounds good. But the story went that this this family were being interviewed, and it was their young girl that had this disease, this rare disorder. And it was actually terrifying for this family because. If she cut herself, if she stepped on glass or on a rusty nail, she would not feel anything. It it was incredibly dangerous, actually. She could find herself with serious infection, which would lead to other complications and ultimately to death. And the mother who was being interviewed on on national TV, towards the end of the the interview, she said this. She said, the the distress that, that this has brought to our family has been incredible. Imagine the anxiety of where she, what she doing. And, and, and they, were, they were traumatized by this. And she said this. She said, my prayer, every night, year after year after year after year, has been this. God, please heal my daughter and let her feel pain again. Let her experience pain. Please, God, please let her feel pain. Imagine praying that prayer. Now, if we can grasp in our finite understanding that that we can see how pain can serve a, a very practical and helpful role, how much more so 
the infinite wisdom of God. How much more can God in His sovereignty allow pain in our lives to help us to know that something's wrong? To point out injustice. To, to, to differentiate between right and wrong. Let me submit to you that, that just because you can't see a reason for suffering doesn't mean that there isn't a reason for suffering. Don't, don't, be, don't trust your perception. How, how can we trust our own perception so much of how things ought to be? It's like going camping. I don't like camping. Our whole church knows that uh, we do church camps and I do the bungalow. So everyone else camps and, and I'm in the, the nice, uh, uh, yeah, I have a comfort issue. Um, so, so the guys go camping and you know, normally, I mean, I, I hear this in the States, it doesn't really happen here maybe, but uh, you know, you go camping and you set up your tent, but just before you go to bed at night, you go into your tent and you just check if there are any dangerous creatures or animals before you go to sleep right so in the states you'd go in and you'd look for a grizzly bear and you'd be like oh no there's no grizzly we're fine we can go to bed here it might be snakes or scorpions or something like that and and so you would look into the tent and you and and you'd say no there's nothing dangerous in there let's go to sleep however there could be a teeny weeny little mosquito that you didn't see that could kill you that night so just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And in the same way, when pain and when God allows pain and suffering in our lives, we, we conclude, how, how could this ever be good? Just because you can't see it doesn't mean there's no good or reason. So I want to jump back. Let's jump back into the story, back into the text. What, what about Stephen and his stoning? Surely this was inefficient of God to, to allow him to die so prematurely as we would conclude. What good could possibly come from Stephen's death? Well, I want to submit to you three things at least. Let's read the text. Again, we read this. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord how could you allow this to happen to me? Is that what he cried out? Lord, do not hold this sin. This sin, it was a sin against them. God allowed it. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Reason number one. How could God allow this to Stephen? Well, I want to say to you, Stephen never saw why he suffered, but he saw God. 
and that was enough. Sometimes God allows pain and suffering to bring us to Him. It's easy to say, oh, I love you, Lord, in the good times. But sometimes God wants us to depend on Him alone. Where, let's ask the question, where was Jesus when Stephen was stoned? Well, did you notice in the text where he was? Where was Jesus? Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, Spirit, Father, the glory of God, and Jesus, the full Trinity, the whole Godhead, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Listen to me, guys. Stephen was not disappointed in this moment. Stephen saw the glory of God. Yes, he felt pain. But did you, did you notice something else? It says Jesus is standing. Everywhere else in the New Testament, the ascended Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's, it's a term of, of, of rest. Of, it's a picture of the fulfillment. It's, it's done. And Jesus is seated, but here he is standing. He is standing. And we get a sense that what Jesus is doing here is he's witnessing to the witness. He's witnessing. Listen to me. Jesus is with us. He may not heal you, but he will hold you. And we have to. Believe that. Not because I'm telling you to, but because it's true. Jesus is standing, witnessing. It's almost like Jesus is giving witness before the Father about the one who's been witnessing about him on earth. N.T. Wright says this about this passage. He says, The human judges might be condemning Stephen to death, but the heavenly court was finding in his favor. What good could come from it? Oh, a lot of good. Stephen saw God in unprecedented ways, and that was enough for him. Listen, God never promised Stephen or us that we would never die. He never promised that. But he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. The second reason we see in the text is that the church scatters to the surrounding regions. Now that might just sound like, oh, well, that's incidental. Well, it's not incidental because in Acts chapter 1, Jesus promised what? That they would be witnesses filled with the Spirit, which we see here, Stephen witnessing, filled with the Spirit in Jerusalem and in Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens. This is promise and fulfillment. The gospel is spreading according to God's plan. Acts 8 verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hey, someone said that. Someone said that that was what was going to happen. Oh, but we didn't know it was going to happen like this. We, we signed up for the spread of the gospel, Right? Uh, they signed up for the spread of the gospel. Give out, count me in. The fine details are a little bit more challenging. Martyrdom 
is what led to the expansion and the fulfillment of God's plan. In fact, when we study church history, we see that God often used similar situations for the expansion of the gospel. My conclusion is God's mission is more important than yours. God's God's purpose is more important than yours. And you know what we see next, Acts chapter 8? We see Philip. We see Philip go because of persecution. He's driven out of Jerusalem. And he goes to Samaria. And then he goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the first non-Jewish convert is a black African man from Ethiopia. The gospel to the nations. What good could come from Stephen's death? Oh, a lot. Where do we live? In Africa. The gospel came to Africa. And if we trace it back, we could go, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Jesus. Finally, point number three. Through Stephen's death, Saul got to witness the gospel. Verse 58, and the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul who became the apostle Paul. Let's not underestimate this witness. Think about how Stephen dies. We, we made a joke. He, he didn't say, now, Lord, where are you? He said, no, Lord, forgive them their sins. Doesn't that sound familiar? Someone who's being stoned, an innocent man, a, a powerful preacher, a powerful witness, being innocent and being stoned or, or killed. And then at the moment of his death, he says, Lord, forgive them. Sound familiar? Just like Jesus. And the apostle Paul is witnessing this. And he knew about that man, Jesus. And now he's hearing about it again. And this Saul would have his day. And no doubt he remembered this moment. And this witness. And this Saul slash Paul would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And in particular, he would write this in Romans 8 verse 28. And we know, not we speculate, we know that for those who love God, all things work together. Now, he's not saying all, all good things, because that's obvious. All good things always work well, don't they? He's, he's, he, the point is all bad things. So you could put that word in there. All bad things work together for good. All good things work together for good. It's nonsense. It's all bad things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, if you're a child of God, nothing comes into your life other than by the Father's permission. So let me conclude. All of a Christian suffering has a purpose. None of it is meaningless. It's doing something. Of course you can't see it. But God is working it. He's weaving it into his sovereign plan. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. For this light momentary affliction, affliction, suffering, is preparing for us 
There's purpose. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, of course you can't see it, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I'm inviting you this morning, not to a fatalistic worldview, but to a father-filtered worldview. We must not forget that we are small and God is big. And that suffering has a purpose. And it reminds us of our frailty and of our need for God. Again, C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Suffering has a unique way of exposing what's really in our hearts. Sometimes we live like this world is all there is. And when suffering comes along, we are reminded that there is a more. Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I think we need to learn the same to kiss the wave, the wave of tribulation, because it throws me against Christ. I know that there are many unanswered questions. And many seek answers when they suffer, but that's not what you need most. What you, you don't really need specific answers when you are suffering most. I want to say to you, it is better that our questions lead us to God without specific answers than to answers without God. And then finally, only a God, only a God who is sovereign over all things can eventually put an end to all evil. It, 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 it's, we, you know, if, we, if we conclude that God is not sovereign over all things, including evil, then how does it end? It can't. If, 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 the, if the cosmic reality of, of the spiritual realm is God and evil are equal in a battle, that's nonsense. God is sovereign over evil because he's going to destroy it. And, the, and the, 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 the initial blow happened at the cross where death and sin were conquered and one day will be finally destroyed. Revelation 21 verse 5. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a glorious hope. Let's pray. Father, we, we come humbly before you this morning. And we really do pray that you would help us to trust you. That when we cannot trace your hand, we can trust your heart. 
when we're unable to see the finer details, we can trust your heart. And I really pray this morning that this word would minister deeply to us, to the people around us. That when we walk through trial and tribulation and we go through the valley, as David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. And so, Lord Jesus, we take great courage from this story. And we know it was a blow for the early church. At least from our perspective, it was a blow. But it scattered them. And because it scattered them, they fulfilled your purpose. And Saul becomes Paul. And, and, and by your sovereign grace, the, the gospel explodes into the nations. Lord, as we look back, we see, we see your divine hand, your sovereign hand. And so I pray that you'd give us courage and Holy Spirit, you would comfort us and you'd fill our hearts even now with great faith and that we would rest in you, our Father, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We rest in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Phew. God spoke this morning. I just want to encourage you. Greg, thank you so much. This is a big message. And if you just need a few minutes to sit and take it in, you're going to go out into a busy world. You're going to have lots of people who are going to love out in just a moment. But if you just need a few minutes to sit and meditate on what God has said, please do that. I just sense this has been a precious moment from Him. And for the rest of us, let's go out, let's share coffee, let's share life together, let's enjoy each other. For those visitors, we're going to bless with um, being together. But just take a few minutes if you need to. For the rest of us, let's just go, but let's go respectfully and in a sense of quietly, um, not unjoyfully. But um, let's just let those who need to sit for a moment and take it in. I encourage you to do so. Amen. Thank you, everyone.